We've been going through the book of Numbers, and in fact, for the past several years, we've been going through the books of the Pentateuch. And if you've been with us since we started Exodus three years ago, four years ago, however long, uh, or maybe you've read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you get these snapshots of the people of Israel, these little stories about what's gone on. And it might be hard to remember that they're actually going somewhere. God has taken them out of slavery in Egypt, and He's leading them to a particular location, to the promised land. And this morning, the passage that we have, people actually get to go in for the first time to see what it's like. And then they come back and tell everybody else. Let's see what they have to say about the promised land. We're going to be reading from Numbers chapter 13 this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel.'" From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebohamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol, and cut from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me as I pray for us this morning? Oh God, we come to your word, to a story that seems so far away and fantastical that it doesn't have any import to us. But I pray that you would send your spirit to us this morning. Help us to believe in what you've written. Help us to believe that this word has power for us, that in fact, this word contains the word of life. 
I pray that we would humble ourselves to it and submit ourselves to it. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A couple of summers ago, our family took the best family vacation that we've ever had. It started by driving down to Southern California. We stayed a couple days uh, in Palm Springs. We did Joshua Tree. We rode that giant scary trolley all the way to the top of the mountain. Nicole found this awesome Airbnb that had a pool. Then we went down to San Diego and we spent a week there. We went to the zoo. We went out to Coronado Island Beach out there. We also taught the girls how to boogie board in La Jolla. It was fantastic. And then on the way out, we stopped at Legoland. We did two days at Legoland. We stayed all the way through closing. We rode all the rides multiple times. And when we got back, we had the girls FaceTime with Nicole's parents. And we said, tell Nani and Pops what your favorite thing was that you did. And I was in another room, but I heard one of our girls say, the pizza that we had at that one restaurant. I don't remember that pizza, but it must have been amazing, whatever it was. Right? Sometimes the stories that we tell about our experiences don't accurately reflect reality. Right? That's what we see in our passage. It's a fairly straightforward narrative. God says, send some spies into this land. We're going to go as a military and, and take it over. Send some spies in. It's only natural. So Moses does that. Sends some scouts. Gives them specific directions. And they return with a report of what they have seen and experienced. But not all of the spies are in agreement, right? The difference between their two reports is simple. On the one hand, we have, it's a great place. There are lots of people. The cities are large. The people are large. We should go take it. We'll call that group the let's go group. On the other hand, we have people who say, it's a great place, but... There's lots of people, the cities are large, the people are large, so we shouldn't go. They all had the exact same experience. They'd all gone together. They'd seen the fruits, they'd seen the cities and the people. What makes the difference between their two reports? The don't go group, they believed only what they saw. The let's go group, they saw the same things, but they chose to believe what they had heard, right? It's a similar dilemma that you and I face in the wilderness of Silicon Valley. I'm not joking. I'll show you. The question before us is, will you believe only what you see or will you believe what you have heard? Two points for us this morning. Will you believe only what you see? These spies cover almost 200 miles in 40 days. And what they tell the people of Israel that they see is incredibly accurate. The cities are large. The people are large. Archaeologists have found the remains of cities in this region from this time period, and the skeletons of people are larger than average skeletons in the ancient East. In addition, the city walls are estimated to have been between 40 to 50 feet tall and 20 feet thick. They're being honest. And not only that, they see people everywhere. I mean, you heard me try to read all of those names. That's a lot of different people groups. They see all of this, and the don't-go group are afraid, right? They're afraid of what they see. They've probably played out scenarios in their head and realized that none of them are going to end well. If we go down to the sea near the Jordan, we're going to have to face the Canaanites. Those guys are huge. They're going to kill us. 
But if we go up here to the, the hill country, those cities are too big. We'll never overthrow them. All of these scenarios end in disaster. And so that's what they tell the group, to try and convince them that we shouldn't walk down this path. Verse 28, they say, the people who dwell in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large. They're honest, right? To convince Moses and Aaron and all of Israel, let's not do this. Let's not go into the land. Even though God says we should, this is going to end in disaster. But then there's this let's go group that pushes back and says, no, that's, that's true, but we should still go anyway. And so the don't go group has to convince the people that their fears are well-founded. So they take truth and they expand it a little bit, right? They embellish the story. They actually catastrophize what will happen. They say, this land, it's not just bad. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. That's, that's strong. That's jumping several conclusions ahead, right? They say, all the people that we see there are, great are of great height. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. It's our, the equivalent of us saying we're shrimps. And then they go one step further. They say, verse 33, and there we saw the Nephilim. The Nephilim were these uh, warriors from the time of Noah. They were large and they were incredibly well gifted in warfare. And the legend was, the myth was, that these were actually like demigods, kind of like Maui from Moana, if you've seen Moana, right? Exceptionally large. They had special abilities and skills. They were semi immortal or immortal because they were the descendants of gods. Now, they use this terminology. We've seen the Nephilim. They're there. But the reality is that they were connecting this mythical people group to the sons of Anak. And we know from history outside of the Bible that the sons of Anak were taller than everybody else. In fact, Anak means neck because they were so big. The descendants of Anak settled with the Canaanites over by the sea in the region of Philistia, and we know from history of a Philistine who was large, very gifted in warfare, but definitely not immortal. They take a little bit of truth, the things that make them afraid, and they embellish. They catastrophize. Yes, the cities are big. Yes, the people are big. And the fear of those things led this group to give a bad report a made-up report, one that was so scary they believed Moses and the people of Israel would say, you know what, we're just not going to go. If we believe only what we see, you and I will do the same thing in the face of our fears. We'll do it when it comes to the way we see the world. God calls His people to be in the world, to love our neighbors, to seek the welfare of the city, to respect and obey res uh, elected officials, and yet, if you look around, you'll see a society that shirks all kinds of morals, a popular culture that mocks and disrespects Christianity, public policy that opposes Christian values. And if you only believe what you see, you'll either grow with such a distaste for our world that you'll withdraw, you'll disconnect, you'll stop caring about it, or you'll assimilate into it so that you don't have to feel any of the negative impact. You don't have to stick out at all. The same is true when it comes to our relationships. 
Right? God calls His people to love and to serve others, to ask for forgiveness and to forgive quickly, to count others more significant than ourselves, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to tend to the sick. But if you look at that, you start to see how uncomfortable that lifestyle is, how lowly owning your failures makes you feel, how powerless and unnoticed you might actually become. You might not ever be recognized as anybody special in any of your spheres, right? And the sins of others against you might go unnoticed. That's a hard line to walk. And so, in the face of that fear, you might begin to think, I only need people who have any kind of value to me. If you stand up against me and call me out for something I've done wrong, I can just cut you off. I'm going to go about building relationships with people who can increase my value, my ability to do good, my notoriety. But it goes one step deeper into our interpersonal life as well. God calls His people to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. To be holy as He is holy. To flee from temptation. To confess our sins, repent to Him. To rest one day in seven. But if you look at that, it kind of sounds like you might be missing out on some fun. It means that you're going to have to rearrange your schedule. You'll have to spend valuable time reading His Word and praying with Him, time that, that doesn't necessarily have any output value. And so, you might choose to simply keep Him around as something you can turn to when things go south. Keep Him in one compartment of your lives. Yeah, I, I do this Monday to Friday, but then I got God on Sunday, and I can go back to doing whatever I want. Right? When we see the things of this world that are scary to us, unknown, things that frighten us, if we trust that that is the benchmark of reality, we're going to choose to do something different than God. A couple of months ago, we found out that we had to move out of our house that we lived in for six and a half years. And we started looking at the market right away to find out that the rental market is not great. The price to rent is much higher than when we first moved into our house seven years ago. And we went to 17 different showings. Nicole came back from one. She said, I found a house. It's in a great neighborhood. Went and saw it. And the next Tuesday at staff meeting, I told our staff, neighborhood is good, but the house, the layout's weird, there's not a lot of storage, the backyard is pretty small, I'm going to have a, I have a hard time believing that God could do something good with this. In the face of everything I was seeing, I was believing that that's it. A bad market, an expensive house, it's in a good neighborhood, but it's not a house that I like, backyard's weird, storage is tough. That must be true, which means God can't do anything good. When what you see alone becomes the basis for reality, then the fear of what you don't have, the fear of what might happen, of how bad things could get, it leads you to spin this web of, of catastrophe and doom and it leads you to figure out a way out of all of it, away from God. But the reality is you can't not see what's right in front of you. Caleb saw all of these things too. It was real. So why did he say something different? He wasn't believing only what he saw. 
He chose to believe what he had heard. Will you choose to believe what you have heard? We see the difference between Caleb's reaction and the don't-go party's reaction in the way they talk about the land. It's at the beginning and the end of our passage, very clearly stated. This don't-go group calls it a land that devours its inhabitants, right? A pretty strong name, but it had a different name. This land had a different name. In verse 2, God calls it the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Two different, very different names. But it's not just that God calls it something different. It's the fact that God has always spoken about this land in a different way, this exact way. You go all the way back to Genesis when God talks to Abraham He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, a huge group of people, and I will give you a land that will be yours and your children after you and your children's children for an inheritance. Fast forward to Exodus 3. I put this uh, quote in the front of your bulletin. God says to Moses, I'm going to free my people from slavery and I will take them to a land that I am preparing for them. I will give them this land. It will be flowing with milk and honey. That's exactly what the spies have found. God has said, this will be your land. I have this for you. I am giving it to you. They had God's word, his promise that the land was for them, the land that God will give to his people. See, Caleb saw what everyone else saw, but Caleb chose to believe what he had heard from God about this land, that it was good that it was a gift from God, and it would be an inheritance for future generations. He took God's Word to be true, right? This is like teaching a child to swim, to jump in from the side of the pool. You get into the pool yourself, and if you just stand there, they're not going to do anything because they're afraid of the water and how deep it is. But if you hold out your hands and you say, jump, I'll catch you, they will eventually Trust your word and jump into the pool because you've said it and you've shown yourself to be ready. Choosing to believe what you've heard from God instead of just what you see will change the way that you respond, right? Living like God wants me to live might mean you should break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and that is terrible. Yes, But you'll never be alone because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not getting the last word in with my spouse or having to admit I was wrong without them ever admitting that they were wrong makes me feel powerless and weak. But God's word through the Apostle Paul says that our strength lies not in our intellect, our verbal power, or our domination of others but in our weakness. He said, God's power is made perfect in our weakness, so we should boast in our weaknesses. Choosing to confront someone that I've held a grudge against or having someone confront me for something that I've done to them is so painful and awkward, could easily damage any relationship. But God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. If you don't work 80 hours a week, if you don't work weekends like your boss wants you to, if you don't produce 
you might think, what value do I bring? My family is going to continue to live in the tiny place that we live. We'll never be able to buy a house. We'll never be able to go visit family or have anything nice or go on any good vacations. But God says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Do you believe only what you see, or will you believe what you have heard? God uh, spoke to His people. Caleb heard God's Word. He saw the world around him, but he chose to believe what God was saying over the potential terror and hardship of going into the land. We have God's Word too. And not just His Word written for us in Scripture, but the Word of God who is His Son. The opening of John's Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through this Word, all things were made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the guarantee of God's promises. Just as the signs that God performed to get uh, Israel out of Egypt and all the signs He performed while they were in the wilderness was evidence of His faithfulness to keep His promise. The signs performed by Jesus are evidences of His ability to keep His promises to us, and more than that, Jesus' life of perfect obedience, His sacrificial death on the cross, and His real and true bodily resurrection are the accomplishing of those promises. See, because of Jesus, you know that your home, your future home with God is secure, right? And it's not just a land flowing with milk and honey, but the new heavens and the new earth where creation is perfect, as it was before sin, as it is supposed to be, where there is no sickness, no death, no tears, no thorns, no decay. But the best part of the new heavens and the new earth is not the grapes. It's the fact that God Himself is there with us. When Jesus on the cross looks to the thief next to Him and says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's not paradise because they're going to heaven. It's paradise because he'll be with Jesus. The Word of God tells us that because of Christ, that home is secure. And actually, you have access to that same relationship and same connection now through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, which means that you can walk into the scary things of this world, not thinking, well, one day we'll get through it and eventually I'll go home and everything will be okay then. But right now, home is with me. God is within me. I am connected to the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Right now, I am at home. And it changes the way that you see the world and react to it. It reminds me of the story of Eric Little, the sprinter who was born to Scottish parents. This was commemorated in the 1980s movie uh, Chariots of Fire. His parents were Scottish missionaries, uh, and he was uh, supposed to follow in their footsteps. That's how they trained him to live. But he was also an incredible athlete. And in the movie, they show him striving to gain a spot on UK's uh, 1924 Paris Olympics track team. And in this movie, what you see is that there are voices on both sides of him telling him what he should do and how, if he doesn't do those things, everything is going to fall apart. 
from the track community, they're telling him constantly, if you don't wholeheartedly devote your life to training, running every day, racing every chance you get, if you don't push off all these other relationships and any thought of the future to just focus on the next 200 meters, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never win. You'll never be known beyond your life. But Eric Little knew and firmly believed that God's word to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy wasn't just a command, but it was an invitation to experience home now. And so he chose to sit out a very important mandatory qualifying race. But on the other side, he has his sister who tells him that giving your life to running is silly and a waste of your gifts. You shouldn't be a runner. It's not a job. You have a responsibility to follow in your parents' footsteps, to go to China and preach the Word of God and be a missionary. And if you don't do that, you're wasting your life. You're denying your calling. You're squandering your time and bringing shame to your family. And in this very pivotal scene, he's standing on this beautiful Scottish cliff with his sister. And he tells her, I've applied and been accepted by the missionary service to go to China. And she gets all excited. And he says, but I have a lot of running to do first. And this is what he says, you have to understand, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give that up would be to hold God in contempt. In the face of all of the fear that these both sides were telling him to give into, he knew the Word of God. He followed in God's footsteps as he led him to follow Jesus, to seek the pleasure of God. Will you believe only what you see Or will you receive and rest in and walk with and believe what you've heard? God's one true word. Pray with me. Father, we come to you and we see you pursue your people throughout history. From the time of Abraham to the nation of Israel. Through us as you sent your son to bring us back to be your children. But we confess it's hard to do that in today's world, in our lives, day in and day out. We see so many things that make us afraid. Would you send your Spirit to us to give us confidence, not in ourselves, our own abilities, our ability to reason through things, but only in the reality that you have accomplished all of this through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your Son. We pray in His name. Amen.